Hello, you guys. Welcome to episode 54 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives into well-known and, more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. It's me, Troy McKeady. How are you? I hope you're doing well. I'm not. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I woke up today. You're, I had a Hollywood night. I had what you would call a Hollywood night. Have I ever explained to you guys what a Hollywood night is on this podcast? Have we talked about that yet? The, the definition of a Hollywood night. Let me just get into it really quickly. A Hollywood night is like, it's a night that you, that's just purely debaucherous. Like it really is like not who you are. And the term originated from uh, my, maybe 10 years ago when we were in college, we were going out for like our first like college New Year's party. Um, And our parents obviously knew we were going to be fucking hammered. Like, we were going to all be just like a complete unsafe mess, basically. And my friend's mom called her and was like, you know, just make sure that, you know, you're safe tonight. Don't do anything stupid. If you need me, call me, you know, bring pepper spray, whatever. And uh, she told her the story and she had it on speakerphone. And it truly changed the trajectory of our lives. But she had the she had the phone on speakerphone. And she told her the story about how, you know, she had a friend in college who... You know, she called her one night from a payphone and she had crawled out of some guy's bedroom window on a roof and she jumped off the roof and lost her shoes. And she asked her to come get her because, you know, she had a Hollywood night and she said, you know, that's a Hollywood night. And it, it really changed our lives. Like when it, it gives you like a, a, a definitive when somebody says, how was your night? And you say it was a Hollywood night. You you kind of already know what that means. You know what I mean? It means that they. Woke up with, like, some dirty weave stuck to the ends of their hair. You know, nowhere near their scalp. It means that they probably had makeup smeared all over their face. They probably slept with some guy that they regret. Um, you know, they, they may be coming home with one shoe. You know I mean? You know what I mean? You, that's the pure... That's the purity of a Hollywood night is it's you're at your most primal. You really are... And the next day, you're hungover in a, a, in a primal way. Like, you're, you're like a caveman. You need... You know you need the essentials. Food... You need water, you need to sleep, and you need all of them aggressively. You have to eat like an animal, you're drinking water like a fucking wildebeest, and you are sleeping like a bear during the winter. Um, but I had a Hollywood night last night, <laughs> to say the least. I'm not going to go into details, that's my personal life. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I just, I, I, I really went for it. You know what I'm saying? I went for it. Whatever it is. I went for it, and I reached for it, and I grabbed, and I clawed, and I tried to get it. Whatever it is, I tried. Um, But I'm here. I'm drinking coffee. By the way, drinking coffee out of a cup, truly that I save for days like this when I don't feel good because it's very whimsical. Um, It's a cup with a lot of whimsy. It's a cup that no 30-year-old adult black male should be using, really. It's uh, it's from Disney. Um, It's a $40 cup. Uh, so I feel very chic when I drink from it, um, but it's an aerial cup from the from uh, from um, the Little Mermaid, and the handle of the cup is her hair. It's very chic. I'm not gonna lie. You should Google it. Aerial coffee mug, Disney handle hair. I think those keywords will pull it up. Um, you guys, I'm excited about today's episode. It's gonna be really good. I I kind of wrote my notes a little bit differently than I ever have. Like I'm I'm sort of winging it which I've never done before, so we'll just see how that goes, but, like, you guys are always along for the journey, you're, like, always down for the ride, so, you know, it'll be fine, I'm sure we'll be fine, um, 
But yeah, I'm just sort of winging it. We're going to see how this goes. I'm going to be talking today about Amy Winehouse and Blake Fielder. Um, you may or may not have heard of them. An iconic couple. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just I just watched the Amy documentary. I've watched it probably three times. And uh, I decided to sort of base my notes more so on the documentary because I felt like it was so raw and real and honest. Um, so more so than like just spouting off random facts about her life and her career and all that stuff. Like I really wanted to get down to the nitty gritty of this woman. Cause I really, I adore Amy Winehouse in a way that I can't even put into words. And this podcast for me has become this outlet to sort of, um, celebrate people who I love that I know a lot of you guys love and, maybe don't get the recognition they deserve or the, uh, the praise or, um, you know, maybe they've been slighted by the media in a way and not really been, uh, you know, it's never been, it's just never, they, things, they're not lucky people. You know what I mean? They're people who have gone through really crazy trials and tribulations and then their lives get just sort of summed up and tied up and wrapped up in a, in a perfect little bow um, you know, Amy Winehouse, singer, died young, you know, alcoholic, drug addict, you know, and it's like Amy Winehouse was much more than a drug addict or an alcoholic. Uh, she was one of the most talented people to emerge in the music industry in the past, you know, 30 years. Um, and, you know, it's it's devastating that we lost her, especially I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary, Amy, but. I really would suggest going back and watching it if you haven't. It's it's beautifully shot. It's go it's gorgeous. I mean, it's it's put together in such an amazing way. Um, it was produced by the production company A24, which is like my one of my favorite. I mean, they A24. I'm you guys know I love horror movies. Uh, A24 did uh, Hereditary, which I thought was like the great one of the greatest movies of the year. Um, they did uh, It Follows, which is now one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Um, so it's just, it's a great movie. It's like, it's, you'll be sobbing. Like, I was a fucking hysterical, blubbering mess. Um, and it really just made me feel all kinds of things, honestly. I really, I just, I'm excited to talk about this. I'm excited to talk about Amy. Uh, I'm excited to, like, revisit her whole catalog and just live in that for a few, few days, because... I always end up doing that after I record these episodes. I just want to, like, live in 2007 for, like, a week. Um, but yeah, I guess we can go ahead and get into it. Like I said, my notes are a little bit different different than they normally are. Let's be clear, there's still 11 pages. Like, your boy hasn't... It's not like I've suddenly become sane. Uh, but, you know, I... I just wrote my notes a little bit differently than I normally do, so... This episode may be a little, um... I don't know... Whatever. I'm hungover, too. Or, you know what I mean? So it's like, cut me some slack. You know what I mean? Like, I'm being experimental because I'm not in my right mind. I'm actually... I'm probably still drunk. I don't know. Anyway, you guys, Amy and Blake started dating in 2003. They got married on May 18th of 2007, and they divorced on July 16th of 2009. Um, they had a very famously tumultuous relationship, um, very drug-fueled, of course. It was just... It was really dark. A lot of abuse, um, a lot of... Uh, uh, I don't know what's the, what's a word that describes a person who just kind of like mooches you know Blake was just like a very unapologetic just like user you know he was a leech he was like he she was his meal ticket and his money pit and his his drug connect and he just sucked her dry um 
They were both very famously in relationships when they met. Um, Blake eventually left his girlfriend for Amy and then uh, broke up with Amy again to go back to his girlfriend, which pretty much all of the content on, you know, that inspired all the, the songs on Back to Black, which is Amy's like critically acclaimed, you know, culture changing album, which we'll obviously talk about. Um, and yeah, I mean, many people blame, I'm sure a lot of you guys blame Amy's struggle with addiction on Blake. You know, a lot of people say that he was, you know, the person that introduced her to a life that would eventually kill her. And I do believe that to be true. The thing is, though, um, and we'll talk about this more, but I think that Amy Winehouse would have found a way. I think that Blake definitely sped that process up for her, but Amy was a really destructive person, um, even as a young girl, and I think she would have found a way, you know, no matter what, to die young, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, I this is just, it's, it's sad, like... I finished my notes on this this episode, you know, a couple nights ago, and I was crying about it, like, up until last night. That movie just really affects me so much, and I just, I love Amy Winehouse so much, and she perfectly defines the kind of person that I feel like I'm defending all the time to people, you know, people just, like, saying really sort of uneducated, like, crass things about people like her being, like, a crackhead or whatever, and it's like, I don't know, I just... I, I just, like, I love her. You know what I mean? People like her and Whitney and, you know, these talented people that have these crazy careers that, you know, change our culture. And then they're just sort of boxed up and pushed away as if it's like, all right, done with that. Moving on. Who's the next girl? So, you know, I just find that really inappropriate. Um, but speaking of Amy, let's kind of get into the nitty gritty of her life. Um, let me take a sip of coffee first with my $40 coffee mug. I'm so, so chic and so bougie. The coffee burnt my lip, which is fine. Um, Amy grew up in Southgate, South London to a Jewish middle-class family. Um, and though her parents were, you know, they were Jewish. Um, she's a, a South London Jewish gal, but they didn't have like a huge, you know, connection to their religion, really. Amy didn't grow up as somebody who, um really practice any sort of like traditional Jewish uh, holidays or anything like that. I mean, she was just sort of, uh, I I wrote in my notes that she, I read that she attended um, Jewish like Sunday school and primary school. And she said in interviews and stuff that she would beg her dad to like not make her go because not because she didn't like being Jewish, but because she didn't feel like she was learning anything about being Jewish there. So to go to a religious school where you don't learn anything about religion kind of felt like, you know, an oxymoron to her. Um, and all of Amy's, I mean, her mom was a singer. Her grandmother was a singer. Um, her, all of her uncles were jazz singers. Her grandmother married a jazz singer. Uh, her dad sang jazz to her her whole life. I mean, her family was immersed in jazz music to the point that, you know, Amy was like a very rebellious, uh, uh, a cut up as you would call it. Um, in school, and she used to, when she would get in trouble, uh, she would sing, she used to go to the principal's office, like, every single day, and it became this tradition that when she would get sent to the principal's office, she would sing Fly Me to the Moon through the hallway, and everybody would come out and listen to her sing, because she had a beautiful voice, and it was undeniable that even though she was this little hellion, uh, she was so incredibly talented, and just, 
you know, born to be a singer, really. You know, the fact that she had this, like, dark, sort of raspy, crooner voice that came out of her without even trying as an 11-year-old girl, it's fucking crazy. Um, And obviously, she grew up listening to, you know, Tony Bennett, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, um, you know, Carole King, uh, Miles Davis, like, just, like, the classic, what you think of when you think of a jazz singer. Um, now, as far as Amy's parents, uh, you know, her her parents play a really pivotal role in her life, as they do with everybody, but with Amy, it's very specific, especially with her dad. Um, you know, she was really close to them growing up. Um, she grew up in an environment where she sort of ruled the roost, though. Like, Amy was in charge. You know, she didn't take shit from people, even as a child. And she would even joke with her mom as a kid, as like a, a 10-year-old girl, you know, and tell her mom that she was, like, not stern enough and that she wasn't a disciplinary and that, you know, she needed more rules and she needed to be more strict and that, you know, she would grow up. She would literally tell her mom as a kid that I'm going to grow up not respecting you because you don't enforce rules. And her mom would agree with her and be like, you know, it's not me. I'm not that person. Um, that person in her life was more her her grandmother, uh, her grandmother who married um, the jazz singer, her, you know, that was her, you know, she didn't take shit from Amy and she was a disciplinary and she was an inspiration for her because she was a singer as well. Um, but yeah, her mom was very self-admittedly weak, uh, when it came to being any sort of authority figure in her kids' lives and in her marriage as well. Um, speaking of her dad, who, you know, as a little girl, he wasn't really around. Uh, he wasn't really a big part of her life. He would be gone for weeks at a time or months at a time and he worked a lot he also was in another relationship he was living with another woman and cheating on amy's mother for uh between nine and ten years um and it took that whole time for him to actually leave her mom which is crazy and that just sort of i think really helps put into perspective like how much of a pushover her mom really was for her to stay in a 10-year relationship where she knew her husband was living with another woman and she was just waiting for him to leave her, but, like, happily living in that world for as long as possible. Um, And that was, yeah, I mean, that was, like, a huge, huge defining thing in Amy's life that her dad left. After nine years of being terrible to his family, Um, He finally moved out and, you know, he described himself as a coward. Even in the documentary, he said, you know, I was a coward. I didn't have the balls to tell my wife, I don't want to be with you anymore. Um, And he just sort of strung her along. And um, Amy's parents finally separated when she turned nine years old. And it sort of, it rocked her entire foundation. Like, she never really recovered from it, even as an adult. And... By the time she was a teenager, she started, you know, smoking and drinking. Um, She was dating much older men. And she was also put on antidepressants that she said made her feel, like, very loopy and out of it. And, you know, it it had a huge impact on the relationships that she would allow into her life. Um, Her very self-destructive behavior. I have a quote that I'm going to read to you later um, that sort of... I think, uh, helps explain, like, just how much of an impact this, this divorce had on her, 
as an adult. Um, but she also acquired an eating disorder during the same time. She had told her mom that she had come up with this amazing diet where, you know, all she had to do was, you know, she could eat whatever she wanted and she can binge on, you know, fattening foods and then she would just bring it up and that was it. And she never had to, uh, never had to retain the calories. And her mom tried to explain to her what bulimia was because Amy had never heard of it. And, uh, I mean, yeah, Amy, Amy Winehouse had bulimia her entire life. And again, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but when you think about the way that this woman was treated during the, the height of her drug issue and uh, her sort of public fall from grace, you know, when you think about people making fun of her body, making fun of the way she looks, you know, commenting about how thin she is, um, you know, it suddenly it was like, okay to judge a drug addict with mental health issues and an eating disorder as if she was just some fucking bitch on the street. Like, you know what I mean? It was like completely fine for the press to just relentlessly rail on the way she looked, which I mean, obviously she looked insane because she was a drug addict and being which again, I'm not going to jump ahead. I'm not going to jump ahead. Um, but yeah, I mean, like she was stuck in this sort of like never ending cycle where she hated the press and they were horrible to her. And then she would do more drugs to escape from the press. And then the press would make fun of the way she looked. So she kept doing the drug. I mean, it was like a whole thing. Um, but she had this friend named Nick Shymansky. And Nick at the time, he was a 19 year old junior, um, an office junior who worked at a promotion company owned by Simon Fuller. And he started working as this sort of talent agent slash like talent scout. Um, he basically asked Amy if she wanted to go into a studio, record some music, um, and he would send the demo tapes out and see if maybe she could get like a record deal. Um, at the time, Amy was so sort of naive about the music industry that she didn't even really know what a record deal entailed and why she would want one. And when she asked or when he asked her why or when he asked her if she wanted to do that, um, her response to him was like, what's in it for you? Like, what do you get out of me getting a record deal? Like, she, like, truly didn't understand that it would change her life. Um, he also asked her if she could write music. Um, she told him that she had only really written poems, which he knew to not be true. I read an article about how he had gone through and read all of her poems and stuff and her, quote, poems that she was writing songs. Um, she was writing music, but she just was sort of like not confident in the fact that she was a, a, a writer and, uh, he knew that she was really talented and, uh, she, I don't know. I just think it's, it's funny to me to picture like a young, this like young 19 year old Amy Winehouse who has talent that's so palpable and like, she's so talented that it's almost like spewing from her, her, her pores you know what I mean? It's almost laughable. Like, that's the perspective of, like, that guy being like, bitch, you write music. You know what I mean? Like, don't try me. You know what I mean? It'd be like LeBron being modest about basketball. It's like, let's just, at this point, let's just call a spade a spade. You're good at the sport. You know what I mean? Um, she also, at that time, had met a guy, a man named Guy Moot. He was the UK president of Sony. Um, so... She went in, she recorded some demos. Her demos were, were given to this guy named Guy. Um, and he asked her to come in. Um, he 
you know, he kind of described the songs as not really, like, hits. You know, she had written some some really lyrically um, advanced music, but it wasn't like she was writing, like, Song of the Summer hits. But they knew that she had potential to be this incredible artist. Like, at 19, to be writing... To be writing the kind of music that Amy Winehouse was writing as a 19-year-old girl is fucking crazy. I mean, it really is, like... Her ability to, to string words together and have them be meaningful and, and like, heartfelt, but also funny and sort of, like, tongue-in-cheek. Um, but to be so impactful, it was just wild. I mean, it really was like this girl was truly born to write music. Um, and at the time, Guy and his, his bosses were very passionate about... You know, they wanted to find... This was an era at Sony in the UK of finding young talent and letting them essentially do whatever the fuck they wanted. Throwing a lot of money at them and being like, if you're talented, we trust you. Give us some hits. Here's $500,000. Do whatever you need to do. Like, they really were fascinated and interested in creating stars that are people who were, like, untapped, you know? Um... And as soon as Amy got her publishing deal from Sony, she moved out. She got her own flat. Uh, she moved in with her best friend, Juliet Ashby. And if you've seen the documentary, Amy, you'll know that Juliet and there's two other girls that are Amy's best friends from childhood to adulthood. Um, actually, no, it's two girls. It's Amy and two of her friends. And they play a extremely, extremely pivotal role in her life and her sobriety, uh, her becoming a star, you know, all of it. They're essentially her family. Um, they were the only people that in her whole life, I think, that really had, you know, her best intentions as far as family. You know, her mom was a doormat, had no say over anything she did. And her dad was a fucking monster. I mean, we'll get into it. If you're listening to this podcast, like, you guys are pop culture savvy, you know. I, I don't. I don't think that I need to, like spell it out for you, but I will, because Amy Winehouse's dad is a fucking cunt rag, and he deserves all he gets in life. I'm taking a sip of coffee before I get too off the rail here. A little too emotionally invested, are we? Um, So yeah, they were sort of living in this, um, this sort of like, (laughs) you know, in in Britney's episode of, uh, of Diary on MTV, there's this moment where she's, like, showing her apartment. She's, like, living in New York at the time. And she's walking through her apartment. And she describes the feeling of living in her own place as, uh, I'm living on my own and my parents aren't here. And that really defines what it means to be, like, 19 years old and, like, have your own place. Do you know what I mean? I remember moving out when I turned 19. And I lived with my friends in a college house. There were th- four of us all together. It was me and three other girls. And I will never, ever forget the feeling of, like, <laughs> of moving all my stuff there and being, like, I'm fully free. Like, I can do whatever the fuck I want. I can wake up and drink a beer. I can... I'm trying to think of things I can do besides... I, I <laughs> almost just went a little too detailed there. Um, but you know what I mean. It's just... <laughs> I'm 
I'm glad that I stopped my mind from just like rambling off things that I used to do in college, like the first year that I lived there. Like I don't, I don't want to, you know. I mean, I've already exposed you guys that I'm like a little bit drunk, so I don't want, I don't want you to think differently of me. Um, but it's that feeling of like that independence, and there are pictures that they show in the documentary and Amy of her and her friends, like, you know, just like hanging out and like having beers and like rolling joints and just like being young and feeling like you can do whatever the fuck you want. You know, she had this money coming to her and her only responsibility at the time was to just write music, which she loved to do anyway. So like I said, her friend Juliet moved in with her and they were just like gals about town. Um, and let me see here. Where am I in my notes? Oh, okay, so at this time, Amy's dating this guy named Chris Taylor, okay? He's an older guy. Doesn't really get mentioned a lot. Um, but she was very madly in love with. She wrote all of her original demos about uh, about him and the fact that she had sort of lost interest in their relationship and how painful it was, you know, for her to see them slipping away from each other. Um, I guess he was, like, sort of a doormat and... She wrote all this music about how annoying it was that she had to be the guy in the relationship and that, you know, he was like such a bitch and, you know, she couldn't emotionally depend on him or lean on him for anything because he was such a pussy, basically. Um, so a lot of her old demos pre-Frank are about this guy and there are some songs on Frank about him as well. Super cute, by the way. Chris Taylor was cute as fuck. Like, very hipstery, very like, um... That sort of, like, early 2000s, like, hipstery vibe where he, like, when, like, fedoras were still chic. Do you know what I mean? Um, and Amy, at that point, she auditioned for the president of Island Records when she was 18. Um, she sang a song she had written called Love is Blind, and obviously they loved her. Uh, they show the audition in the documentary, and she's just, she's just raw, fucking untapped, ridiculous talent. She's a full-faced healthy weight, young, happy, spry, sarcastic, funny, outgoing Amy Winehouse, who was just outrageously talented, um, which led to the Frank album, a great album, by the way, so underrated. If you are an Amy Winehouse fan and the only music you know of hers is the back to black era, the sort of like love is a losing game, etc., you should go back and listen to Frank. It is Especially because it's depressing music, but it's also, like, such a happier time in Amy's life. So, to hear this, like, young, pre-drug issue, Amy Winehouse, like, singing about love is actually really... I love it. I love the the, the Frank album. Um, but it was released on October 20th of 2003. Um, Amy worked with a producer named Salam Remy, who, if you are an Amy Winehouse fan, you know who Salam is. Um, he's this really tall, sort of big black guy. Um, he is, I want to say he is, he's like an islander, I want to say. Or maybe I'm making that up. I could be confusing him with her bodyguard. Maybe he didn't have an accent. Who knows? Um, but he's ridiculously talented and super, super influential in her sound. Um, he was sort of the, the person that helped her cultivate like who she was what style of music she wanted to sing, what her voice sounded like, um, her writing style, her performance style. Like, he really, really helped create Amy Winehouse. Like, they sat in a recording studio for, for weeks and months or however long, and she came out a completely different person because of him. 
And, uh, like I said, this album just represents a very sort of sweet era in her life where she was happy and she was healthy. You know, she's in good spirits, like it's pre-drugs, you know, and she also wasn't so famous yet. Like, that was what was great about this time specifically in Amy's life. She wasn't so famous that it felt like, you know, that her career was eating her alive. I mean, at a certain point, it really felt like Amy Winehouse was just a fish in a fish tank and her career was actually every single day destroying her soul, killing her, killing her creativity, like killing her spirit and just turning her into this like caged like elephant man. You know what I mean? Terrible. But at this time, it's fun to watch Amy do interviews and stuff because she's so like spry and like funny and uh you know she even said at this point like at this particular time in her life that she for one thing didn't see herself becoming super famous you know she didn't make mainstream pop music so for her as a person who equates like you know being a famous singer with being Britney Spears she looked at herself as like I'm like this niche jazz artist that plays at you know, small clubs and venues and stuff. You guys, I hate to cut you off, but at this point, I think you know the drill. You've got to be a Patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode. So go to patreon.com slash ebpsychos. At that point, you will uh, be asked to donate. And then when you donate at this level, you'll get this podcast. You'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week. You'll get Liz Bentley's Feathers in My Hair, which is the Teen Mom podcast. Um, you'll get me and Molly's, uh, Brittany and Kevin chaotic special. You'll get all the stuff that Molly does exclusively through Patreon. It's well worth it. And also if you're not a member of our Facebook group, go to Molly and the It'll take you straight to it. And, uh, all we do all day and all night is talk about reality TV. It's super fun. So like I said, patreon.com slash EB psychos and Molly and the Truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games. <laughs>